So, John, you have, yeah, you've just devalued the value of a John Coxon nomination in my eyes. How can I take them seriously now? Also, are you eating a mini croissant? Yes. You may need to cut that bit due to the chewing noises. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 85th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 8th of June, 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we are in the summer of fun! Summer of fun! I guess it will be June by the time this is out, which counts as summer. The summer has already begun, Liz. Yeah, I mean, summer of fun is the period where everyone is having fun and scheduling becomes impossible, right? Yes, the summer of fun started on the 25th of May, 2023. And you can tell by the surf music. Because I am in a covered garden outside a barn in the midst of Wales, where I've managed to find some Wi-Fi. I am in Glasgow, in the Crown Plaza, attending Satellite 8, a convention. And Liz is in Liz's house and is not at a coffee festival. So, sorry, Liz. Correct. What, what do you do? What's a coffee festival like then? Well, I don't know. I'm not there. But I believe it would have lots of stalls from different coffee shops and coffee roasters and lots of coffee to buy and I could get super caffeinated. Because <laughs> I understand what a beer festival is like, but I feel like I could not do what I do at a beer festival or at a coffee festival. Yeah, you can't do that unless you can drink infinite amounts of coffee, but you can try a few different coffees and there are more opportunities to say buy nice beans and take them home to make your own coffee than at a beer festival where you might be able to buy like a growler full, but it's not going to be good forever. It's okay, there will be more coffee. Coffee will continue. So we have some letters of comment. So we haven't done letters of comment uh, since Easter Con. Or, sorry, since um, we did our EasterCon Roundup episode, Thara Mendelssohn writes in with a photograph of the International Centre Telford, which reads, Wales Comic Con Telford Takeover, 13th to 14th of May. So, yay, Wales. Sandra Bond writes in to say, so much for my intention to write you a lock on your fan fun discussion in the previous one. Sandra, there's never, there's never not a time where we wouldn't love to get a lock from you. I did say that if she wrote us a lock in the next 48 hours after she made that comment, it would get into this episode. Another time, Sandra. You can write locks on episodes as old as you like. There's no statute of lock limitations. Yeah, they don't even have to be very closely related to the episode. It could be very tangential. Just write to us, guys. We're very lonely and we like to hear from you. We have some emails. We have a letter of comment from Chris Garcia. Another excellent episode, entirely focused like a laser with patents with quite particular expectations. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, and contributes some recommendations for things to nominate for Hugo's. Uh, we're, but the nomination deadline has been and gone, so we're not going to read them out, Chris. Also, if you want to know what Chris thinks you should nominate for Hugo's, I suspect that there is an issue of the drink tank you could read that would have a lot of detail. So I encourage you all to go and read the drink tank. All of it. If you start now, you might have finished by the next episode dropping. Although maybe not. Alex Holden wrote in, and Dave Mansfield wrote in, Now, 
Dave wrote in in the form of an, a link to an Instagram reel, which I am reliably informed by Liz is what happened, because from my perspective, he wrote a DM with no attachment that made absolutely no sense. And that is because apparently I have to check my Instagram DMs every day in order for reels to still be there when I check them. So listeners, if you if you send me a message in a medium that requires me to check it on the same day, you, you may find that that doesn't work because I am... Um, I'm an enigma. I am in the night. Also, I'm very disorganized and sometimes quite busy. Uh, so yes, sorry, Dave, did not see the thing you posted, which Liz says was you doing the astral pole. And that does sound great. And I wish I had seen it. Because, I mean, I, I assume it was real. But now I'm wondering, did Dave really send me real? Or did I just hallucinate Dave doing the astral pole? It's a very impressive astral pole. I hallucinated, though. I regularly do that. I got an Instagram DM from Dave. But um, and when we told this to Alison, Alison was like, hang on, do we have Instagram now? Which tells you how reliably Instagram DMs uh, get through to Alison. But yes, no, he sent a DM with Astral Pole Challenge laughing face, which I assumed meant he had listened to our episode and just decided that Instagram was the medium uh, with which he would comment on it. And I was a bit confused, but I was like, oh, that's nice. But no, apparently now that I know there was a video there that I now just can't see, it makes way more sense. Yeah, no, I... I check Instagram once a week and I don't normally bother to check my messages because they're all gentlemen who tell me that I'm lovely and would like to get to know me better and I'm not interested in any of them. So, sorry, sorry, Dave. Mine is mostly scantily clad ladies with a lot of numbers after their names being like, you could get into crypto. And I'm like, no, thanks. <laughs> and that is segmenting marketing. I don't get any of these. What what the fuck have you done to your Instagram setting, guys? Because I'm not getting all this kind of shite. I don't get many spam DMs. Like, I would say I probably get one one a month. But they are all of the DMs I got on Instagram. So, like, even though the uh, quantity is not high, the ratio is very bad uh, of content to uh, nonsense. Fair enough. All right, on to, on to Alex's. Alex sent us an email. A traditional form of DM about a youtube video yes alex said he put an email of him doing self doing the astral pole on youtube 17 years ago but has now unlisted it and very harshly didn't send us the link so you'll have to imagine a very young alex holden doing the astral pole um, i think that would be excellent content for your instagram channel all about constantinos alex <laughs> I mean, can you use a constantino to do the astral pole it's probably not a very good idea with your uh, precious constantino is it I mean, I, I, I do, I, I check Instagram once a week and it's nearly always, nearly entirely so that I can check out Alex's hot pictures of concertinas. That is an entirely different sort of spam DM, Alison. So if you're looking for hot pictures of concertinas, I recommend Alex's Instagram, but unfortunately not Alex doing the astral poll. We got a letter from Chris Garcia, where he, I think, is on the, the John end of the COVID spectrum. Uh, he writes, I find it odd that Hispania is the calm, rational voice of reason. I don't know this world anymore. And Chris, she would say the same thing about you. But he does say he doesn't like going to green rooms because it might be his improv training. And I'm like, I feel like you can improv in a green room, Chris. Um, we did get quite a lot of locks saying that I was totally wrong about COVID. So, you know, I might have been. We got, lock we got a variety of locks, which we're not going to go too much into detail because... I feel like having seen this unfold on various forums, it could go on infinitely. <laughs> and that idea fills me with dread. Yeah, I, I don't think... I, I, we've, we've had a lot of people's thoughts, but I'm not sure we're adding a lot of content to the debate at this point. 
I do think I want to pull out one thing from one of our letters of comment. Um, and not just because I encouraged Abigail to put this in an email. Um, we got a letter from Abigail Nussbaum and specifically she was saying that Hugo Award winning fan writer Abigail Nussbaum. Indeed, Hugo Award winning fan writer Abigail Nussbaum, who uh, points out that the conversation Easter Con mask policy uh, ended up kind of abandoning panellists on panels a bit and that she really did not like the option of, you know, allowing panellists to ask people in the room to mask, which I think we covered. But I think it's worth noting, you know, you do not want to have your panellists at a con feeling like you have kind of abandoned them for COVID. So I think that is something kind of future, future policies need to take into account, which is like your, your panellists are showing up and basically doing a job for the con. And generally, if they can't do the job for the con without feeling like they might get COVID, then they're not going to want to do that job for the con. So it is always a balancing act, but I kind of put a bit more weight on the feelings of the panellists than kind of the feelings of the audience watching them in this field. I'd agree with that. I mean, the panellists were well spaced from the audience in, in large, well-ventilated rooms, but I, we, we were expecting, I think, people to mask more than they did, as we said last time. Um, Abigail also said that she really enjoyed conversation um, and thought it was one of the best conventions she's attended in every other respect apart from this. So, you know... That was kind of nice, but still. <laughs> Sorry, Abigail. I was gonna say, I'm going to raise one thing, which is we keep saying large, well-ventilated rooms, but um, I think, as we said before, we don't really have a standard for ventilation or any good way of doing this. So I think at some point fans are going to have to work out what we mean by large, well-ventilated rooms. And does that mean going into those rooms with a CO2 monitor at some point or asking for specs on the ventilation of the venue, which hopefully venues are going to get better at providing because, you know, we can say large, well-ventilated rooms, but I don't think we actually know how much the air is recirculating in there and so on. I like big rooms and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. We also heard from, uh, and I can't remember if he's written in before, uh, Christopher Garcia, <laughs> who wrote in saying that he liked the special episode and A Face Like Glass is the kind he'd love to read but never seems to get around to until it bumps up against me on Audible. I, I quite like what he says about, it sounds like a book that pumps ideas into the air and then he spends a week thinking about them and then kind of they infect his brain. And I know what he means. Some of the stuff in A Face Like Glass, when we're, I was re-listening to the conversation when I was editing it, I was struck by like how much it had uh, made me start thinking about like the power of, of people to inform the conversation and how um, biased the media is towards the powerful. Uh, and I, those are all thoughts that are still bouncing around in my head. And so I do think I do think there is something there with the infectiousness of the ideas in that book that I don't know whether we touched on last episode because we recorded that quite quickly after finishing the book, I think. Um, and like th- that was, oh God, when was that? Like a while ago, listeners. I don't want to take you too far beyond the curtain, but suffice to say it was like months uh, and those ideas have been bouncing around in my little cranium for a while since. So, um, so yeah, no, I think he's got a, a point there. Oh, and the Mastodons. We got toots. Tammy Coxon wrote in to say that it was an excellent Octothorpe. Thank you. Um, Zambia programming software came out of Aresia, and they had a registration system that was called Congo, as in Con-Go. <laughs> and then Zambia was the system they made to fit into it in a uh, sort of... You can see how that ended up happening, but uh, but yeah. On the naming of things. 
And so, yep, no, that is that is fan history we were unaware of. Thank you very much, Tammy. Um, I still think Ariadne's good. And then you could rename the registration system like after a different spider, like Boris or Charlotte. We got a letter from Randy Smith, and I'm not sure Randy's written to us before, um, saying that when he stood for TAF, ran for TAF in 2015, he chose nominators based on who do I think I can get? <laughs> that is a, a model. No, I think that is, that is a very reasonable. I read a new fanzine by a new person. Martin Petto. Martin Petto, just the other day. Yes, so Martin has done a fanzine called Moon? Moot. Moot. And it has the return of fanboys and Alison has spoiled <laughs> my pick. But... Oh, sorry. Shit. <laughs> no, that's all right. I've sent him a letter of comment. Andrew Hogg has redone some fanboys uh, books, books, comics, which is very good. And no, it's very well designed. It is. It's landscape. Yes, it's designed for reading on iPads. Oh, it is, yeah. I approve. He says, a podcast is a fanzine made of talking. And Nick Fairy would have issues with that, Martin. But anyway, yes, yeah, so there are new fanzines. Um, and one way, one of the best ways of getting your fanzine into, in front of the eyeballs of people who read the old fanzines is to send it to Bill Burns to put it on efanzines.com, which is what Martin Petto did. I don't think I know Martin. He made us some lovely slides for Eastercon. Yeah, no, I mean, part of the fanzine is about your lovely slides. Uh, well, the last thing I was going to say on nominators is, so guys, if you're thinking of running for a fan fund, get in touch. We will... We may not nominate you, but we will we will point you in the direction of likely nominators. So we heard from Raj. Raj agrees with Alison. He's got his first con since the before times coming up soon, which is the con I am at now, listeners. And he says he thinks he's coming down more on the Alison side of the argument than mine. Fair enough, Raj. We are now nemeses. Uh, and he says, I raise a good point. Oh, no, we're friends again about getting boosters from Boots. Which, yes, if politicians keep comparing COVID to flu, they need to explain why we can't get the same protections as the former as we can against the latter. That is a very nice point, Raj. I liked that sentence a lot. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And also, they love the private sector. Why can't the private sector sell us a load of COVID jabs? In the show notes for the last episode, um, or no, sorry, in the show notes for the episode before last, we said, there are no picks this episode. What have you been reading? And Raj was the only person who wrote in. So Raj is going to get to have his pick on Octoport. Uh, he has picked The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches by Sangu Mandana, which is a cosy fantasy that melted his heart. Um, so hurrah! I might look that up. It sounds interesting. It's a great title. Yeah, I'm going to say, I've not heard of that. It sounds good. Thank you, Raj. Soon we will be obsolete. Because the... <laughs> yeah, soon the podcast will just be locks. Uh, I say soon. <laughs> this episode, listeners, this episode. DC wrote in saying that they enjoyed the last podcast and they agree that Conversation did the hybrid convention thing excellently. Is also reminding themselves to read more Francis Harding. She's so good and she also seems to be a lovely person. Agreed on both fronts, DC. Ooh, that was a lot of locks. Yeah. This morning, while I was at breakfast at the convention I'm at, I got an email from Chicon 8 announcing that they are doing partial membership reimbursements. So if you volunteered or were on program for Chicon 8, keep an eye on your email. Um, they say that you will... 
Um, they are offering a standard reimbursement amount to all qualifying staff, volunteers, and program participants as follows. And it's um, between 60 and $80, depending on how many people choose to take up this offer for adult attending. And if you were virtual attending, it's 40 um, So hurrah. I think it's very nice of them to include the virtual attending members as well. I mean, obviously, it's not really been a decision previous cons have had to make, but it's nice to reimburse them, especially as, you know, lots of volunteers and program participants will be doing a lot of work virtually. Mm-hmm. No, it's good. It's good stuff. Yes. Tell us about the convention. I am at Satellite 8, which is the eighth convention in the Satellite Convention Series, which are held at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Glasgow. Guests of Honour, Christopher Priest, and fan guests of Honour, Michelle Cuddles, Drayton Harold. Chris Priest is being very Chris Priest on all of the programme I've seen him on, which is very good. Meg McDonald managed to persuade him to give a reading at the start of his Guest of Honour interview, which he introduced by saying, I hate doing readings. And then Meg was like, but I did ask very nicely. <laughs> and then he stopped. And then he said, I'm going to stop there because I hate doing it. And I'm like, fair enough. <laughs> uh it was good um but yeah lovely little lovely little relaxicon how many how many people are there would you say mm, 100 maybe also it's tiny yeah it's nice um oh and um there's a scavenger hunt and more conventions should have scavenger hunts if you're running a scavenger if you're running a scavenger hunt and you haven't got a convention no wrong if you are running a convention and you haven't got a scavenger hunt uh fix that now now uh, so basically they've hidden it's not really i guess it's not really a scavenger hunt it's a treasure hunt they've hidden pictures of astronauts around the hotel and you've got to find 42 astronauts and um there's a prize don't know what the prize is don't care the point is filling in the list the prize is the satisfaction uh but yes found the last three yesterday uh in between karaoke so uh it was good and yeah so the satellite um conventions are all themed around like space exploration uh or kind of well facets of space exploration so um so they're kind of my bag anyway and i volunteered for ops oh do you get like a walkie-talkie and uh, a shiny a shiny vest no for a 100 person convention that would be excessive i think he gets a badge i get a badge that says ops Ooh. i get to sit behind a desk and people come in and say can i sign up for a thing and i'm like yes Except for if they want to sign up for the cheesecake tasting, in which I'm like, no, because it was full. I went to the cheese tasting. It was bloody brilliant. How was the cheese? Good cheese. We were driving to the middle of Wales on Friday, and I noticed a size saying, cheese making next right. And so we stopped doing what we were doing and drove to the place of cheese making. And they were not cheese making, but they did have a lot of their own cheese. And they said would you like some lunch? And I said, what sort of lunch do you have? And they said, well, we have a cheese platter for two. And I said, that sounds very good. So there was so much cheese, I had to bring cheese away with me. So I have I have cheese tucked into the fridge here, despite the fact that they're also feeding us a lot here as well. So cheese, cheese is good. Yup. But it was cheeses I've never, cheeses I've never had before that are made at this one dairy that j- just makes cheese, local cheese for local people. It's practically on their mission statement. Oh. It's like, we will make we will make cheese and distribute it within Herefordshire. I was like, okay, that's that's fine. That's a take. I like Herefordshire. Speaking of cheese, I just want people to know that I did the last the cover for the last episode entirely on my phone on the train, which I think is a first for me. I was so proud of myself. And it has cheese on it. Imaginary cheese. 
does have cheese. Good. Cheese. It's it's kind of a relatively small convention. There's two or three program tracks, depending on how you look at it. And there's nothing opposite the Guest of Honor items, <laughs> which I kind of love. At 11, there is a program item uh, about moving to Scotland. <laughs> so, you know, it's a recruitment drive. Scotland does seem nice. A data point, Liz. I went to a bar in Glasgow that was selling beer for £7.20 a pint. Yeah. This has been Beer Price Roundup with Liz. We're going to need uh, chapter art, uh, Alison. Beer Price Roundup, right. It's very high. Presumably the Crown Plaza, is, is it a venue for Glasgow in 2024? It is. I mean, presumably it will be a hotel for Glasgow in 2024. It is both. I don't know how much of the space is being used for convention things. They are, they are in fact, using all of the spaces in this hotel for Glasgow in 2024. I don't know exactly what they're using them for. I don't think Programme have gone on the tour of the venue to work out what is being used for what yet. So, like, I don't know. I, I don't think areas have been bagsied for specific uses yet. But I know I think they have the entire SECC and I think they have all of the space in this hotel, except for maybe one of the big halls, which they have an option on, but they haven't committed to yet, I believe is the case. But yes, so lots of program space in this hotel, uh, which is very nice. Yeah, I mean, there's an Eastercon's worth of program space, as long as your Eastercon's quite small in, in the Crown Plaza. Yeah, I don't know if it's had any change or updates since yeah. I last went to it in 2006. But I mean, I know the... the the area has because they've obviously built like the hydro and I think some more hotels in the car park. But I would assume the Crown Plaza is largely the same. They might have painted it. When also you get free stuff. I mean, free are users of term neglecting the price of the room. <laughs> but uh, but it's nice like you get like um, loads of like bottles of like water and a couple of bottles of beer and a couple of cans of wine and stuff. Um, so that's been quite cool. Just means you can nip up to the room and like have refreshment, which is lovely. And the breakfast is very good. It doesn't have mushrooms, but it does have haggis. Wait, 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 wait. Did you say cans of wine? Yes. Are you sure that's not a mini bar and you'll discover you've be, you'll be charged for them all at the end of your stay? <laughs> Rang down and asked. <laughs> but yeah, no. Uh, I can't remember. The cans of wine have a pun on them, but the cans of wine are no longer in the fridge on account of how we drank them. So I can't check what the pun was, but there is a pun. I mean, like, it's not fantastic. I mean, obviously there's tea cakes, which are great. I don't know how much of this was here when I was here for Satellite 4, because when I was here for Satellite 4, I was a PhD student, and so my like ability to go out for dinner was, was less than it is now. But there's like a lot of restaurants on Argyle Street, which is like a 10-minute walk away, uh, and there's just like so much good food and drink there. Um, it's really nice. I mean, for the Worldcon, I guess you're going to need to like try and book and make sure that you, you have a table planned. Um, but that is really, really good. We went to a place called the Tap House. Was that where you had your £7.20 pint of beer? Yep. It was very good, though. Local brewery. I think it's fair to say that they also did p pints for, like, £5.20, but that was if you wanted, like, a pint of Blue Moon or, or a pint of, like, something equally uh, generic. Um, if you wanted good beer, it was more. But that is kind of the... That's kind of the way of, of, of nice beers, unfortunately. Mm. Yes, it's like this lovely pub in Paddington that, that Claire has found. It's like a pub except perfect in every respect. And, um, and the one respect to which it might not be absolutely perfect is that everything is very expensive. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I, I've the only satellite I've been to is the Eastcon. I Every single time I think, oh, yes, that would be good. We should do that. <laughs> We've never managed it. I don't even make it to the Eastercon because that was the year of Worldcon. And so I was spending all my free time and money on uh, Worldcon. Yep. I mean, I really did enjoy the Eastercon that there was there, though. It was fantastic. I'll be fair, I also bought a house. So that took up a lot of my time and attention rather than a Eastercon. Mm-mm. There has been some discussion um, about whether or not people think that the Hugo Award um, nominees will be highly skewed towards Chinese language works or not in the last few weeks. We are recording this before the lists are up. We are mindful of the fact that the episode might come out after the the list has dropped. So we're going we're gonna to do some discussion of that without knowing what will happen, listeners. Ooh. Octothorpe Pontification Corner. Basically, we're, we're either going to look super smart or completely the opposite. So let's do it. Alison, what, you, you, what is your view of this? Um, my view of this is that there will not be any, or maybe one or two, but almost certainly no Chinese language finalists on the Hugo ballot. And my reason for thinking this is that I don't think the vast majority of um, Chinese SF fans have any concept of what the Hugos are or what they do. Um, I don't think they're very interested in it. And I don't think they are... I'm not seeing any evidence that there is any sort of... Because um, Science Fiction World magazine, right, could have could have run a campaign to get Chinese fans to nominate. And I think if it had done this, um, they would have done and we would we would know it was happening. And we have not seen anything of that kind. And so I don't think it's going to happen. So I I think I agree. And part of the reason I agree is that there have been two previous years. The Japanese Worldcon and the Finnish Worldcon have both occurred in my time in fandom. And obviously, I suspect a lot of uh, Japanese and Finnish people do speak English. But what we didn't see in either of those years was a lot of Japanese or Finnish language science fiction on the ballot. And now I don't know whether that's because those countries just don't have as much science fiction as China does, because I don't have a good view of international science fiction listeners. But I do, it would, it will be interesting if China is the one that proves the uh, exception to the rule because so far the Hugo has been remarkably resilient to being held in countries that are not first language English. And like, I don't know, maybe that is a a fool's extrapolation, Um, but that is just kind of where I'm at. I I wonder whether the same thing will happen this time. What do you think, Liz? Well, I mean, it would be quite easy for me to at this point say, I think there will be at least one Chinese language nominee on the ballot and then, since you guys have picked zero, I will look smart if there's any. So I'm going to do that. Yep. But no, I think I think this might be the year. So I think in the year of Helsinki, the thing is, I think because all the Finnish fans, firstly, the Finnish fans were still a minority of the people nominating, you know, because there were huge numbers of British American fans who had signed up for the vote and not, and then many of those voted for Helsinki. It wasn't purely Helsinki fans, whereas in Chengdu there's a lot more. Uh, the Helsinki fandom as far as I know, basically everyone I met at the convention was fluent in English. And while they were reading Finnish language and Swedish language science fiction, they were also reading a lot of English language science fiction. 
And also, I will say for Chengdu, I just don't really have any insight into what's going on because I just cannot read any of their social media. I can't read any websites. can't really see any discussion. So I think given the number of them who are fully signed up as members thanks voting in DC, and given that some of the categories have incredibly low numbers of uh, nominators, Either they just have a very low number altogether or they have a really, really broad spread, like in short story where you have a lot of nominators, but a massive spread. I, th- I think there will be some categories with uh, Chinese language nominees or Chinese people who blog or podcast or write in the Chinese language, possibly in things like short story, where I don't think it would take a lot of votes from China if they coalesce around a small number of stories. You know, if, if there are... 3,000 votes from Anglophone readers, but we pick 300 stories, and then there are 200 votes from Chinese members who pick a small number. Even with E Pluribus Hugo still in effect, I think that would still get them a nominee. And then when you get down to categories like Best Fan Artist, Fan Cast, Fanzine, Fan Writer to some extent, where you don't need a huge number of nominations, then I can easily see that they might, might only need 100 people get you on the ballot and that seems completely possible so i think there's going to be more than one what i can't explain really is why in 2007 there were not any japanese language nominate nominations but i don't know enough about the situation then and you know how many of them had joined up to vote in site selection and things like that to really know if it's going to be a big difference but i will stick my neck out and say there's going to be some chinese language nominees on the ballot okay so i have a question for you liz why were there none last year because there were lots of Chinese fans who had joined for site selection and who um, could have nominated Hugo's, and there were no Chinese language works on the ballot then. So what, why, what, what do you think has changed in the intervening year? Is it just that the ratio of Chinese to American fans? Because we, I think we know that there were more Chinese fans who had signed up to that Worldcon than American ones for site selection, but I don't have a feel for like what the absolute ratios were. Yeah, okay, you do have a good point there, which may undermine my theory. But my other theory would be that, as far as I know, when ChaiCon sent out, you know, email communications and opening nominations and, and so on. So what I don't know is whether the fact that Chengdu will have been emailing all its members in, you know, their uh, native language will have made a difference to their kind of awareness about being able to vote in the Hugos, being able to nominate stuff, and whether they there is a sector of fandom who just weren't aware that they had those, you know, nomination rights for Shycom. I sort of agree with that, but in the last five minutes, I have been checking the internet and have also checked the nomination lists for the two Wilcons that were in non-Anglophone countries before John's memory which were Hycon <laughs> in 1970 and Confiction in 1990. And none, neither of those um, ballots contained any non-English language works, as far as I can tell. So that's true. But I think it's also like, I think the landscape has totally changed since Worldcons of the 1990s in terms of how many people nominate. And I mean, also the voting, vote counting has changed. Um, and, and also I would say... Um, I don't know. I mean, I know there is like a thriving kind of, you know, there is a German language SF scene, there is a Dutch language SF scene, but how much of that is there and how much crossover is there between fans of that and also fans who are reading in English language as well? Like, I can believe there is a big segment of fans who are signed up to Chengdu Worldcon who do not 
habitually read any science fiction in English. And I suspect a lot more of the German and Dutch fans were reading things in English. I think all of them were. Maybe not absolutely all of them, but the vast majority of um, um, Dutch fans at Confiction and almost certainly also the German fans at Heikon, of whom there weren't actually all that many, were reading English language SF. Because even, even in 1990, remarkably little SF was available in Dutch translation. This was one of the things that the Dutch fans complained about a great deal. I mean, uh, there's a, there is a thing on, um, on File 770, just to remind me, is that there is there was no like Chinese language ballot uh, for Shikon and apparently there had never been one previously. So when they're in Germany and the Netherlands, they also didn't translate the Hugo ballots and I'm pretty sure they didn't do it for Helsinki either. So I think this will come maybe the first time they've actually had a bilingual ballot. Could be interesting. I thought there was a Finnish one. Finns, right in. Yeah, I did think there was a Finnish language one, but I don't know. I mean, so, so much at Helsinki was done in English. It almost felt like there are like world cons which have had program tracks in other languages, but it's always been very much a kind of minority thing. And I think most of the people, you know, on the Spanish or Polish or Irish language tracks have also been taking part in the uh, English language one. Yeah, picks. Who wants to do their first pick? So you would you would think I would have a good pick at this point, but apparently I've spent the last month and a half reading uh, non-science fiction books, watching non-science fiction television and films, playing non-science fiction video games, or doing all those things but not wanting to actually recommend them. So you're going to get a podcast recommendation. Which feels very cheeky, so it feels like I'm piggybacking on everyone else's podcast recommendation. But essentially, lots of people last year recommended the Going Rogue podcast by Tansy Gardam, who is a podcast all about the making of Rogue One, which I have not listened to yet because I feel I need to rewatch Rogue One before I listen to it. So it's on my list. But she has a new podcast series currently running, which is called Striking Out, and it is all about the 2007 2008 writer's strike. Uh, through stories of the shows and films that were running at the time. So it's obviously very timely given we're in the middle of another writer's strike. And the first few episodes are out and there's some about, you know, Quantum of Solace, the the Bond film and how the writer's strike affected that. And then also about The Office, the US one, um, which is very interesting because I hadn't realised it was such a big thing in the very early days of streaming. And it was really interesting to hear about kind of you know, how they felt getting the the right residuals for streaming episodes of The Office was a big thing in 2008. And obviously it's paved the way for what is now a massive, massive thing. It's an entertaining podcast. Stanza Garden is obviously very well-read, well-informed and fun to listen to. And I recommend you give it a go. And maybe nominate it for Hugo next year. No, um, Going Rogue is on my uh, list of things to listen to, but I'm, uh, a bit, uh, I'm a bit behind on podcasts ever since I discovered that you can watch all of Durham County Cricket Club's um, matches on YouTube, because then I do that instead of uh, listening to podcasts, and it's bad. I listen to them on my commute, and my commute is very short, so that's the problem. No, actually, the problem is that, you know, during Cycling Grand Tours, I try and listen to, like, two and a half daily podcasts, so that's the problem. I mean, that does sound like a very interesting podcast. It is. Go and listen to it. Okay. Shall I do my pick? So I am going to pick another Apple TV show. 
I do I do watch other TV that's not Apple TV sometimes, but anyway. Um, this was recommended to me by Abigail Nussbaum, who said, this is Sunk Below Trace. It is Shining Girls, a eight-part series based on Lauren Bouquet's book and starring Elizabeth Moss as a woman who some years ago was attacked by a psychopath and survived and is now trying to piece together what appears to be a series of quite strange serial killings. I think it's not, you know, I'm picking it so it is genre. It sounds like it's not genre, but it is It is science fiction as well as being a thriller, obviously. It is all very beautiful and very put together and all of the performances are marvellous and I have a slight hesitation about it because A, I haven't quite finished it yet. So this is another pick where I'm halfway through a series and picking it. But B, it does have quite a lot of imagery and content about dead women and stalking women, which is not my favourite topic. But everything about else about the show is so good that I'm kind of letting it letting it off a bit. But it's it's very good and almost nobody seems to have mentioned it. It's sort of come up it came up in Abigail's Hugo list, but that was the first I'd heard of it, and I don't think I've seen anything else about it on any of my socials so so i feel like yeah this is this is something that you might be interested in especially if if you like that kind of thriller science fiction crossover genre thing which you might i was surprised you liked it because you are a um confirmed wuss which is a word you have used to describe yourself and this yeah wait till we get to me talking about six wakes spoiler you never did six weeks oh wow okay you are more of a, but hang on okay so you you're fine with but shining girls is way worse than six weeks i mean i've only read the book i haven't watched the tv series yet but like um shining girls is like really creepy yes i think the tv series is quite careful right yeah no shining girls is super creepy six weeks is not so creepy but no shining girls is 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 incredibly creepy we're having to watch um an episode of lower decks immediately after it every time so that it is not sitting in my brain at bedtime fair so so it is a, a, it, it, it's this kind of guarded pick right it's right at the edge but i think they've been careful i think they're kind of tr- they're trying to make prestige tv and so they've been quite careful about the ways in which they're doing all the really scary stuff and I know that some people have bounced off the novel for this for this reason as well, that they found it too too horrible. Yeah, I read Moxieland when it was it was the free book at the Eastercon in twenty two thousand and nine. I can't remember. Going back a while. And I read it and then when Zoo City came out I read that and then when Shining Girls came out I read that. I, I am I am I knew they were doing a TV show of it. Um I haven't is like not bubbled to the top of my to watch list yet yeah same for me i i've read the book i'm aware of it i just haven't got around to watching too much stuff not enough time yeah so i don't know how it finishes yet so though i have a i have a guess i have a spoilery prediction for how it's gonna all unravel i am gonna pick so an anecdote i went to the house of noted critic neil harrison and noted critic nick clark and noted critic mosca the cat and breakfast and we watched movies we watched stormy monday with sting and a very young sean bean which is very good uh and we watched uh the menu and we watched a random episode of the west wing and over breakfast the conversation turned to how we haven't picked all these worlds reviews and essays by neil harrison yet on this very podcast 
In fact, listeners, you may not be aware that Neil Harrison has written a series of reviews, which he has then collected into a book, which is called All These Worlds Reviews and Essays by Neil Harrison. And I have finished the book. It's quite good. And this is the sort of incisive criticism, which is why I do not have a collection of my uh, criticism uh, (laughs) written into 161,000 words of uh, genius. Uh, But no, it is extremely good. Don't you find you want to argue with him on every single page? Because that's what reviews of criticism do for me generally. I go, oh, yes, well, uh, he's so wrong about all this stuff. No, I think good. So I think this is the difference between good criticism and bad criticism. Which is, I think bad criticism makes me want to argue, and I think good criticism introduces me to a viewpoint I hadn't considered before. If my first instinct is to argue, I think it means you haven't properly explained your point, because it means it's not in my brain enough. Because I think I would have to be, and I think, I'm trying to think of a way to say this nicely, I think I would have to be very sure of the primacy of my own opinions for someone very wise to say something, and then for me to be like, oh, but you haven't considered it properly, and argue with them. Okay, so the very first thing I would recommend to you for reading nonfiction with a critical eye to start to develop your critical skills is to always be thinking, who is this person and why are they lying to me? You know, what is what are the holes in the things that I am reading? Where can I find the holes in this argument? Have they been patched? Why have they not been patched? This is like this is like what critical analysis is. It's like the the number one thing you do is go right. What this is a point of view. So, Alison, I don't know if you know this, but I've been a scientist for 11 years now and I read scientific journals. So I am aware of this. Thank you. You don't need to explain it. I think that a good critic doesn't make me think that they are deliberately occluding part of the discussion in order to try to lie to me i think a lot of critics do do that and it drives me up the fucking wall the thing i love about harrison's criticism the thing i absolutely adore about it is that he actually admits the parts where he is taking a line and he thinks about all of these books as a holistic whole and instead of trying to sell you his opinion of them he talks about them in a way that's full enough that he can explain what his opinion is but he can also explain why his opinion may not be your opinion and take other people's opinions into account as he does it and he does that fantastically and so i don't need to do that when i read harrison's criticism because harrison is doing it for me and that is what makes him one of the preeminent voices of his generation i mean i have not read this book yet there are two copies of it on my shelf uh waiting for me to read it i'm very slow at getting around to reading books on paper nowadays maybe i should just buy the kindle copy as well then i will read it why have you got two copies? Uh, one of them is, is me um, shuffling one to the opposite side of the world on a planned trip later this year. There is a reason for it. One of them is not technically mine. Liz is a book mule <laughs> the, for Zach. Yeah, I'm a book mule for Zach. I mean, in some ways it doesn't make sense, but I know I will see him in a few months' time. And so it made sense for me to take one at the time, get it signed and hand it over to him. I thought we were going to have a podcast where all three of us picked... But I have the I have three copies of Neil's book, so I outrank Liz. <laughs> I have the ebook, and then I have the paper book that's signed, and then I have the paper book that's unsigned. You've got the rare unsigned copy. Yes. Well, I bought it. Well, no, I didn't buy it. I've bought one copy, but I have three copies because mm-hmm. I did the typesetting, so I got a contributor's copy. And Neil gave it to me in his house, and I forgot to get him to sign it. And then at Eastercon, we bid on the one that came with the free review. Mm-hmm. Or oh, you, more, what's he reviewing? More, 
He's reading I Jedi by Michael Stackpole. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> we are bad, bad men. Is that not a particularly good book? <laughs> <laughs> that was a very good laugh. John loves it very much. So there's a thing here, which is that my Star Wars fandom is like partly the films, like the original trilogy, and it's partly the new, the sequel films. But then the other strand, so like I got into the original trilogy when I was like a kid, like, like you know, I must have been, what, eight, seven, no, nine. I enjoyed them very much. And then like uh, you fall off the wagon a little bit. And then when I was a teenager, I read the Rogue Squadron novels by Michael Stackpole and uh, they kind of reignited my Star Wars fandom. And I Jedi is kind of the fifth book in that sequence, but kind of not. It's kind of part of a series of books I loved very, very much, but I can't pretend it was good. I strongly suspect it's bad, but Neil's going to read it and it's only 200,000 words long. 200,000 words? Yeah, well, because it's because it's the sequel to a four book sequence, and it's also telling the same story as a trilogy of books which are happening at the same time, but it's telling it from a different perspective. So it's a good self-contained novel to get Neil to read. We're basically just very bad friends, <laughs> or good friends. But he hasn't started reading it yet. It's on his um, table. Well, it, does he have like a succession of to be read? Uh, how, does he have a complicated to be read system? Don't know actually. He like I don't know, but I think yes. Well, so they've just recently decluttered a lot of books, and like I know several of those books are books that were on the to be read pile and are now on the this will never get read pile, which is why they're being decluttered. So I think their to be read pile is like definitely non-trivial, but I haven't asked. Neil, if you're listening, write in with a detailed explanation of your Tubi Red system. It's also a very fetching shade of green. Yeah, no, I'm sorry for setting you off, John. That's all right. I'm sorry for being set off. Yeah, but you did. You had just gone and said, yeah, it's good. I like it. So, you know. Well, it is good, Alison, and I do like it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I would agree with you that Neil is one of the foremost critical critics of our age. Oh, so you should say um on the pod because i think i mentioned it in the third row panel but i should say it somewhere like out loud which is the reason that this book exists and the reason i think a large part of the reason i don't know if it's the whole reason i don't want to speak for neil um, but i know a large part of the reason that neil has returned to writing a column for strange horizons and has returned to criticism in recent months is the fact that conversation invited him to be a guest of honor because I think he felt it was a very great... I think he felt it was like a validation of him as a critic and a validation of his place in the field and in, in an external way where he he said to me one of the reasons why he decided to do a book is that being invited to be a convention guest of honour felt a bit like a publisher expecting interest in a collection. He was like, this this shows the community is interested in my criticism, so like it shows that I can do this book. And then I think... But all this to say, I don't think we would have the book and I don't think we would have Neil doing more and more criticism now if it wasn't for the fact he had been a guest of honour. And so I will say, uh, I want to say thank you to Conversation for doing that because I think it is for the good of the field that that has happened. But also I want to say to conventions who are considering the guests of honour, this is something you might want to consider when selecting guests of honour is selecting guests who might find the honour 
invigorating in a way that will mean that they return to what it is they're known for in a way that does benefit everyone and i think that is a very that is a very powerful thing to be able to do if you are a convention committee uh, and it is a gift you have that not many do uh, and so yes thank you to conversation and um, perhaps food thought for others ties neatly into my kind of philosophy on what being an eastercon guest of honor should be which is that it it should be an honor that it that we should be picking people who who we honor by by having them as as our guests and and then the convention should work with the person so that they're what they do is is brought out in the way in which they are celebrated as part of the convention's program and i hope we did that with all of our guests but i think we did do it particularly well with neil as it happens and if you are interested in hearing neil's um desert island books then you can go and listen to the sixth episode of the critical friends podcast which is the strange horizons criticism podcast uh which has an edited version of the interview and if you're interested in the third row fandom panel it is now up online on youtube as part of fanact.org's fan history events because it it fitted absolutely into their um rationale so they were very pleased to have it and thank you to everyone who's on the panel for letting it go up there so that's those are two examples of stuff from conversation that's being preserved um there there will be more but quite a lot of it's sitting in my intro waiting for me to sort it out at the moment so that was the Autodore podcast and it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me I don't mind. We could we could touch on Hugo. We could do like ten minutes on Hugo's and then do picks. Do you want to? I've got an idea. Do we all want to make a guess as to something about Hugo's? Let's make some kind of guess that can be then easily falsified before this podcast comes out. Yes, I'm down. All right, all right. So let's do a little mini Hugo prediction thing. I have a Hugo prediction, which is that it's not going to have any or more than one or two Chinese language finalists in any category i'm very glad that we go john alice and liz because that's also my prediction and it means i can go first and alison's gonna have to predict a different thing <laughs> you fucker i think we could all discuss that once that's fine i i kind of agree but i kind of disagree it's an interesting one are we doing are we doing this now because i disagree as well or do we want to like so are we doing it and you know kind of back editing it or do we want to properly do the segment and have this discussion which i think we'll fill five minutes ten minutes and then we do picks and we're done so let's okay so let's discuss let's shall we just discuss whether we think there will be lots of chinese language um nominees on the ballot and let's not do predictions let's just discuss that question the theme music for this episode was surf shimmy by Kevin McLeod and Combatech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.